15 January 2021. That's the date of the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Jack Cush, executive editor with RoomNow.com. This week, there's hope. Hope for what to do after the COVID vaccine. There's hope for IL-6 inhibitors in COVID infection. There's even hope for IVIG in dermatomyositis. We really need hope for 2021, so let's review 2020. We have the year in review for 2020, and it's not all about COVID. Let's start with a shout out to our friends at the Cytokine Signaling Forum. As you know, they have a weekly podcast. They have uh, emails that come to you. Uh, If you've gone to ULR, they send you uh, uh, emails and invites to good content. Um, This week's podcast features an interview between... um, Paul Emery interviewing Mike Weinblatt from the Brigham and Women's Hospital, and they talk about RA therapies. It's a great historic tale. A 30-minute podcast reviews the early days of biologic development and why you are doing what you're doing now. I found it really engrossing. It was a great listen. Congratulations to Paul and Mike for a great interview and discussion. Um, I listened to all the podcasts. You know, um, Mike Putman, Adam Grant, John Houseman and the CSF, I think they're all worth listening to. I mean, you're in your car, you might as well, right? Hell, you're listening to me. Let's start with the news from Japan and our friend Tom Taguchi and his colleagues, who for years have been telling me about the merits of the other calcineurin inhibitor. Which one is that? That's right, tacrolimus, and their use of it in lupus nephritis. They published the results of the safety and efficacy in almost 4,000 lupus patients. Actually, it's a multi-center um, data collection. It's all open label. There isn't a comparator here, but they have really good numbers on the safety, and it's really quite surprising. Again, it's a highly effective therapy that um, works well in difficult lupus patients when you're running out of options. It's a worthwhile resource to have and to read. I want to point you to the CARE RA study. This is an early RA trial that has recently published their results looking at the influence of comorbidities on RA outcomes. So in this fairly large cohort, I want to say it was 1,600 patients, but I don't have the number here, but it was a good-sized cohort, um, two-year study, uh, and they measure everything, as you might imagine. And what they showed was that if you have a comorbidity, you're more likely to have bad outcomes bad outcome being not able to achieve remission uh, and maybe getting hospitalization and other untoward events. So in their study, looking at a two-year endpoint, if you had comorbidities, it was a 28% reduction in your odds of being able to achieve remission by metrics. You also had a fourfold higher increase. That's actually a 372% higher increase in future hospitalization if you had comorbidities. And obviously you did the best if you had no comorbidities, better, a little worse if it was one, a lot more if you had three or more. So it's sort of a dose response curve there. The point being, this is a modifiable variable here. This is something that we should be taking a more active role in. And by the way, the influence of comorbidity on poor outcomes has been shown in other disorders, especially spondylitis. We talked about that before. Psoriatic arthritis and now in rheumatoid arthritis. A few uh, tidbits about COVID. We can't not talk about it. It's ever present in our lives. But an interesting study of telemedicine, uh, specifically um, patient reporting of swelling. So many of us are doing telemedicine, tele-video, I hope, and not telephone. 
But when patients report swelling in their joints, is that really predictive? In this study of 1,637 patients who were early RA with only 13 weeks of symptoms, they compared the patient reports with actual physician examination. And they showed when the patient reported it remotely, virtually, 76% of patients said they had inflammatory, said they had swelling. Um, but when they were seen by the rheumatologist, it was only found in 41%. Therefore, really good sensitivity, 87%. Specificity, not so good at 41%. Positive predictive value, 46%. Negative predictive value, 77%. Point being, patients report pain, that means something. They report swelling, maybe not so much. You're going to have to find other ways to better assess. By the way, uh, number one, nobody should be doing telephone medicine. That's dangerous. Do televideo or not at all. Secondly, I don't think anybody should be seen as a first visit by televideo. It would have to be under duress or extreme circumstances. Really, everyone at this point should be seen face-to-face. But if you're not doing face-to-face, I guess that's all you got. Um, get with the program. Most of us are doing some degree of face-to-face. Um, the NPF um, actually came out with an interesting guideline this week. You know, they have their guidelines for their psoriasis. Uh, population that's the National Psoriasis Foundation have a task force. They came up with an update to their COVID-19 guidance report and guidance number 4.6 states, and this is important to you, that psoriatic arthritis patients and psoriasis patients who are going to receive the mRNA COVID vaccine should continue on their biologic and their oral DMARD therapies so as to maintain the management of their psoriatic disease. This applies to rheumatoids and spondylitics, meaning that anybody's getting the vaccine, don't hold it, don't stop it, just keep going ahead. The only drug that you need to be wary of, no, it's not methotrexate, we'll talk about that next, is rituximab. So if your patient just got rituximab, they're going to have to wait six months before they get the vaccine. It takes at least that long to get back your uh, new and improved humoral responses. Um, If you're going to give rituximab, Give them the vaccine first, wait two to four weeks, and then um, start them on or renew their rituximab infusions. Everyone's arguing about what to do with methotrexate. We did a video on that with Kevin Winthrop. Uh, Kevin um, uh, Winthrop, look at that. Um, the ACR has a task force coming out about that. I know you have a guideline about holding methotrexate after you give the influenza vaccine. That does not apply to other vaccinations. It's only been studied under, inf- under that circumstance with influenza. Let's wait for the recommendation before we start doing that. Otherwise, keep all your drugs going. Um, other questions came up this week, I think, that are worth repeating here. You, the doctor, you've received your two COVID uh, vaccines. I have. Right arm, left arm. I'm good. Had very little side effects. The question is, what do you do after that? Do you need to continue to wear a mask and goggles and all that stuff? Do you need to avoid going to bars and... Probably should go to bars anyway. Should go to gyms, but... Um, and hockey games? I, I can't go to hockey games. The CDC came out with a guidance on this. And they say, yes, after you've received the vaccine, whether you're a patient or a doctor, you should continue the same safe practices. Wear your mask, hand washing, avoid congregate settings, social distancing. Because you can still get infected and you can still spread that infection. So until we have achieved herd immunity, which is not going to be until hopefully 2022 when everyone or more than 70% of people have been vaccinated, um, you're going to have to continue to wear your mask and and keep your patients on the other side of the room. Um, 
should your patients who um, have had COVID-19 infection, should they get vaccinated? The CDC recommendation is 90 days. Look at that. If you'd like to know more about these recommendations, I covered them in a QD clinic video and podcast called What to Do After COVID Vaccination. We have that citation on the site for you to look at and listen to. Uh, another interesting abstract came out. Or actually, it's a preprint um, coming from a news report out of the UK that says that cerilumab and tocilizumab, the IL-6 inhibitors, are very effective in treating COVID-19. In this particular study, um, these were patients that were hospitalized with COVID-19 pneumonia. They were not yet on a ventilator, intubated, or in the ICU. When those patients received the IL-6 inhibitor within 24 hours of going, or before 24 hours of going to the ICU, uh, the IL-6 inhibitor was associated with a 36% reduction in overall mortality. So mortality rates in, the, in those who didn't receive IL-6 was 36%. These are people going into the ICU. But if you're on tocilizumab, it was only 28%. If you're on cerilumab, it was only 22%. We've given you some mixed messages in the past about cerilumab and tocilizumab, sometimes working, sometimes not. It might be what is seen here. It might be when you give it and under what circumstances. If you wait to give it to someone who's already intubated and in the throes of cytokine storm, it may be game over too late, Charlie. Um, but to give it when they're sick enough to get in the hospital before they get in the ICU, that may be the right thing to do here. A really interesting report came out this week from PNAS about a novel look at what may be causing osteoarthritis. Obesity and weight, sure. We do know that the mechanical loading of increased body weight, you know, alters mechanics, uh, alters stress loading, may induce local cytokines and depokines and contributes to cartilage degradation and the progress of osteoarthritis. However, these researchers said not so fast. And using a mouse model of lipodystrophy, they showed that these animals were actually protected against cartilage damage, even though they were obese and fed a high-fat diet. High-fat diets did not increase the, um, the pro-inflammatory profile and adipokines and TNF and IL-6 and other things that are produced. But if they actually took explants of adipose tissue and put them in those rats those mice, they actually showed a mitigation or a reversal of the uh, uh, pro-inflammatory, anti-inflammatory mix to a more of an anti-inflammatory picture, and they had less systemic markers, they had less overall cartilage damage, it seemed to be protective. So there seems to be a communication going on between adipose tissue and cartilage that is operative in OA patients and OA patients who may be obese that could probably be differently uh, modulated in the future, this needs further study, but it's a very novel finding in PNA, PNAS this week. Uh, another really important report it was the uh, association of low dose of corticosteroids with cardiovascular risk. Um, we all know that high doses uh, and prolonged use of corticosteroids are associated with increased risk of cardiovascular events, including heart failure, um, arrhythmias, stroke, MI, vascular events, etc. Um, but it's un not known if lower doses can do this. So they, this particular study looked at a very large database, a few hundred thousand people in the UK, the UK Clinical Practice Research Data Link, um, 87,000, 88,000 patients with immune-mediated inflammatory disease, RA, lupus, PMR, you know, over 20,000 apiece, who had not yet been on steroids and then put on steroids. And what they showed when they followed these people for five years, at one year, 
If you were not on steroids, your risk of having a cardiovascular event was 1.4%. But if you were on 25 milligrams or higher, equivalent prednisolone dose, you had almost a 9% uh, risk. Uh, that's, that's like about an eight-fold, seven-fold increased risk. At five years, the rate went from about 9% to 28%. Of, oh, was that a three-fold increased risk? Um, but what they more importantly showed that doses of less than five milligrams prednisolone or equivalent when given to patients, now incurred a higher risk of cardiovascular events with a hazard ratio of 1.74, a near doubling of the risk. And by the way, these findings were irrespective of disease activity. So again, it's an important finding and, and really should be another reason maybe why um, patients shouldn't be managed with steroids at all. You know, I was, I was raised, in an era, raised in an era where a little bit of prednisone and the combination regimen was a really smart idea. You know, um, great rheumatologist like Ted Pincus says, you know, two milligrams a day forever doesn't cause any problems and might actually be really beneficial. And, you know, his experience was it was great. I'm kind of a believer, but, you know, more recent research says steroids are damaging. Infections, um, cardiovascular risk, etc. You know, Michelle Petrie, I, I listened to her lecture recently, and she's very much against the use of steroids in the chronic management of lupus, that she can manage lupus without steroids. Again, this is something we need to continue to study and revisit in our practices. A very interesting uh, report this week appeared in medicine. It was the ProDerm study, a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial of IVIG intermatomyositis. You know, the dermatologists use this stuff like it's water. Rheumatologists use this stuff when we get into trouble and we don't know what else to use. And then we, I don't know how to give it. What's the dose? Who do I call? Where do I give it? You know. But this is the first study that actually has shown in a double-blind, randomized, controlled manner that it works in dermatomyositis. Up until now, we've just had sort of anecdotal reports. I was really excited when I saw this in the literature. However, it was a, re a publication that was detailing the design of the study and not the results. And they concluded by saying the results will be available in the third quarter of 2020. They published this in the first quarter, 2021. Well, luckily for you and me, the results were published at ACR. So abstract number 0955 gave you the results. This study, 95 patients randomized to receive placebo or IVIG. The version they used was the Pfizer product. Octagam, an IV product, 10%, given as 2 grams per kilogram every four weeks. And the primary endpoint was at 16 weeks where you had to achieve something called a TIS, total improvement score of greater than 20. That was the minimal response. Guess what? If you were on IVIG, 78%, 79% response versus 44% on placebo. If you did higher levels of response, TIS greater than 40, TIS greater than 60. Similarly, very high, significantly better responses with the IVIG compound. Again, the p-values on those responses were P less than 0.001 or, or lower. So very, very significant. And again, really well tolerated, minor side effects. However, there were five events on long-term follow-up uh, of people who had um, uh, venous thromboembolic events. Um, one DVT, two combined DVT PE, and one... Um, PE alone. So uh, I guess it's four events. So again, we do know that IVIG can be associated with 
uh, a greater risk of, of, of clotting events? Is that related to the viscosity or is that related to the underlying disease? These numbers are actually not that much higher. If you consider 95 patients and four events, that's, you know, about maybe what, 4%. Um, it's maybe not higher than what you might expect in someone with an inflammatory condition like uncontrolled dermatomyositis. Interesting nonetheless. Um, maybe rheumatologists should use more IVIG. Let's end with the 2020 Rheumatology Year in Review. This is sort of a, a tradition at Room now. I've been doing this for a long time. Uh, you know, it could all be about COVID, except I had to make it much more than COVID, although COVID was number one on my list. Let me give you a quick rundown of COVID things that were notable this year. The GRA registry, the telemedicine and rheumatology, at-risk patients being those who are on steroids and those who have uncontrolled active autoimmune disease, not necessarily inflammatory arthritis. Those with reduced risk might be inflammatory arthritis patients, especially those on TNF inhibitors and JAK inhibitors. Um, the involvement of, of lupus anticoagulant and the antiphospholipid syndrome in the pathogenesis of complications uh, and the vascular events that are deadly in COVID are sort of surprising rheumatology thing. Uh, drugs like colchicine, IL-1 inhibitors, IL-6 inhibitors have fared well in multiple studies. The question is, when should they be used and how? Baricitinib actually is FDA approved. They got an emergency use authorization in combination with remdesivir for the treatment of hospitalized COVID. New syndromes, the MSIC syndrome, the Kawasaki-like condition, multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children was a newly described condition that we should be importantly involved in. And U.S. mortality figures, 3.2 million deaths in 2020 in the United States. That's up 400,000 in the last year, presumably all due to COVID. But there were many other new things in this year in review. There were not, there were no new drugs for RA, but there were a lot of new indications. Did you know that Symphony, was, uh, Symphony and Zelgence were approved for use in polyarticular JIA? That Kineret and Rolanicept or Arcalis were approved for the deficiency of the IL-1 receptor antagonist and a, a unique, rare, rare, rare autoinflammatory syndrome. Similarly, the IL-1 inhibitor canakinumab was approved for adult stills disease. Ben Lista got approved for lupus nephritis, Nucala or mepolizumab, got a, approved for hypereosinophilia syndrome. Otesla got an approval for, you know, right? No, you didn't know. It got an approval for scalp psoriasis. Uh, Tremphia, the Guselcomab IL-23 inhibitor, got approved for psoriatic arthritis. Uh, and TALS and Cosentix both got approved for non-radiographic axial spa. I think one of the biggest papers of the year was probably the ACR's Reproductive Health Guidelines. Of course, it doesn't help that I was one of the co-authors of that. Uh, maybe I'm conflicted, but read it. Um, there'll be very little Jack Cush opinion in that because it was an expert committee of many great people led by Lisa Samaritano from HSS. It is a document you should print out and have in your briefcase and read over lunch and re refer to it repeatedly. It's got so much information in there about precon preconception counseling, about contraceptives, about the use of drugs in both the patient and the kid and the father, um, and then what to do about um, lactation and, and aftercare. Um, again, look at it. Another really important paper in Lancet this year came out at ACR is the FAST study, long-term use of fabuxostat versus uh, allopurinol in at-risk individuals showing that fabuxostat was better than allopurinol or equal at least in many parameters, um, suggesting that fabuxostat shouldn't be labeled with a box warning uh, for cardiovascular risk. 
um, immune-related adverse events, IRAEs. A lot of people are talking about these. We're seeing more and more of these. These are the uh, rheumatic and and immunologic complications seen with immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy, which are being increasingly used, and thus we're seeing more of these patients. We're doing well. We've defined the syndrome really well. We understand it really well. The good news is that our patients can receive immunosuppressive therapy, steroids, and even biologics, not CTLA-4-IG or abatacept, uh, and actually do well without any risk to their tumor or cancer progression. Jacks are still all over the news with new indications and new studies. Um, again, there are a lot of studies, but not yet new indications in the skin area, atopic dermatitis, eczema, alopecia universalis, and dermatomyositis. Um, really exciting reports of jack inhibitors being used with great success in psoriatic arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis. They're oral. They're coming. They're a force to be dealt with. Um, ULAR and ACR came out with their guidance documents regarding RA management. They're also worth a review. We've done uh, uh, whole videos on that, uh, and I think that that's been extensively reviewed, but you should look at those. Filgotinib was the next great drug to be approved in, in 2020, last minute. They get a complete response letter, meaning that we need to see more safety data, concerns about your studies on spermatogenesis, and the company took the drug off the market. They withdrew their new drug application in the United States. The drug is approved in the EU and other countries. Uh, They're still going forward in other countries, but they're not going to approve it or go for it in the United States, one, because they don't have the safety data just yet, and two, they were getting pushed back on their second dose, the 200 milligram dose. And they felt to be competitive in the U.S., they were going to have to have both the 100 and 200 milligram doses available, which would be different than the other jack inhibitors, which only have one dose available, and you know what that dose is. Lastly, hope for systemic sclerosis. While all of these studies have basically been phase two, uh, we'll see what they do in phase three. We do know that tocilizumab has gone through phase three um, and was withdrawn, but is now back on the table. It might get approved for a lung indication. Hard to say what's going to happen there. But a number of other new compounds, an anti-IL-4, IL-13, bispecific uh, monoclonal antibody, rom- romilcomab, uh, looked very good in phase two. Um, Zirotaxostat. Dinesh Khanna presented that data ACR. It's an autotaxin inhibitor. Also looked good in phase two, but you know what? It only improves skin, but not lung outcomes. Also looking good in phase two was tofacitinib, actually a study from Russia, um, but it looked really interesting. And then abatacept, a phase two trial, looked really good. We end with the 10th most important thing of the year being those rheumatologists who passed away. There are a number of really big names. A lot of my friends I'm just going to mention here. Um, David Minner from UT Southwestern. Eric Gall, who was, uh, did so many things in Chicago and Arizona. He was a, 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 um, a leader and a, an innovator. Harry Spira, maybe America's best rheumatologist for many, many years. Um, uh, he, he did grand rounds when I was a resident and made me interested in rheumatology. Tim Harrington, um, Bill Aaron, ACR editor, A&R editor, Luis Espinosa. I mean, his history in Tampa and uh, New Orleans is legendary. Um, Robert Bennett, fibromyalgia fame, Ian McKay, a lot of other names. I mean, a big year for losing big people. So um, just thought you'd like to know that. Ending on a downer, but it's an important... um, Actually, when I was looking this up... um, I kept finding more and more names 
And my editor said, stop zoom, what is it called? Stop doom scrolling. It's called doom scrolling when you're on your phone looking for bad news. I wasn't looking for bad news. I was looking for a complete report. Anyway, a long podcast this week. Make sure that if you have any questions or cases, go to Backtalk. You can click on that on the website and on the email, and we can record it and feature you here. And then uh, Room Now Live is open for registration March 21, 22, March 2020, 20 and 21. It's going to be live in Fort Worth. It's going to be virtual and streaming to your computer. You can tune in either way. We'll see you next week.